correctly. All right, so we are officially recording the first year MFA reading. Um, and I'm also going to share my screen. And while I do that, uh, Kazem, if you'd like to uh, introduce our readers. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Kazem Ali. I'm a professor in the literature department at UCSD, and I'm super excited to be hosting the first of our two um, MFA readings as part of the new writing series. And it's our first one via Zoom. So um, we're super excited to have all of you here and um, sad not to be together in person uh, in the Seuss room, but kind of excited that our family and friends from around the country can join us for the reading. So uh, that's very cool. Uh, I just wanted to say that we had had some other readings planned for the spring quarter, um, including um, our own uh, Anna Joyce Springer was going to read with Francesco Lovato, who's a um, wonderful uh, poet as well. And we're gonna reschedule that for next academic year. And we were also gonna be joined by Karen Anhui Lee, who's a, a local San Diego um, poet and fiction writer, and we'll reschedule her for next year too. So um, yeah, not to worry. Uh, so we have four great readers for tonight. I'm gonna introduce, uh, I'll, I'll come back and I won't introduce them all together. I'll introduce them one by one in the order that they're reading. And as Nina mentioned, uh, if you have any questions or anything you wanna add, you can just type it into the chat and we'll catch that. So our first reader is Becca Ray Rose. Becca Ray Rose is a cross-genre writer from Sisters, Oregon, whose mountain roads and myriad animal bodies inform her work. She writes to unravel how gender, flesh, and the contemporary political moment not together. She is an assistant poetry editor for Narrative Magazine. Take it away, Becca. Thanks, Kazem. Okay, hi everyone. Um, okay, so I'm gonna be reading an excerpt from a piece. It's kind of a short story, maybe a long poem. I'm unsure, but it's cross genre, so that's okay. Um, I'm thinking about the road, not as you can see my background of the road. Um, I'm thinking about the road, not as um, challenging this idea of the road as a symbol of freedom in the romanticized American West but instead thinking about it as a place, both literal and metaphorical, where bodies are made disposable in America. So this is a short story set in Central Oregon in a small town along Highway 20, where they have tried to put an end to roadkill. And this was sparked by a doe, this is fictional, I should probably mention, sparked by a doe who fed up with the violence of the road, tries to chip away and remove it. Um, all the other local animals join the doe and try to destroy this common predator that they have in common, the road. This leads to a standoff with the Department of Transportation, which is where the excerpt will start. And the narrator is a woman who lives in this town and sits by the highway to flag down and stop anyone who tries to speed through. Um, and she is on this monologue talking to a man she stopped and is making him listen to the history of the place and the standoff. Okay, here it goes. It's called animal control. And so the standoff. The animals wait. The air buzzes and bloats with insects, turgid, anticipating. Who will make the first move? Please pour forth for no shot to be fired. 
smartphones come out live recording the scene to social media, the whole nation on the edge of its seat. For the first time in their lives, each human contemplates the cost of their cars and takes stock of the road dead they have caused. And so it works. The only thing that might stop a state-sanctioned firing pin from sending a bullet into a breathing thing, the potential for bad press. Weapons are lowered begrudgingly. The county sheriff removes his hat and steps forward while the coyotes growl a warning. He puts his hands up as a white flag and the fur-coated ones hold back. We'll strike a deal, he declares, remove the pavement and return to a dirt road. Then no car can rumble over 20 miles per hour without damaging their vehicle, keeping the speeds low and the collisions lower. The nation cheers, the locals hoot, no one waits for a signal from the animals. Everyone assumes the matter is resolved and celebrates. The guns are packed up and ferried away. No problem, they all think, we'll go slow. But do the powerful ever honor what inconveniences them? With nothing else to do, the coyotes relax and return to the foothills. The swallows, the hawks, and the insects swarm away in various directions. The beetles scuttle off. The rodents all disperse to their dank, cool hideouts. All that is left in the end is the doe. She keeps chipping away at the road, determined to never set foot on pavement again. No, you're not wrong. The road beneath your feet is still paved. In fact, it's smoother than ever. The broken belly of it sewn back up. Barely a ripple as it passes under your tires. See, the nation quickly forgot of the great standoff, forgot their swollen hearts, forgot their bloodied wheel wells. No one but the doe ever tore up this asphalt. But most of the locals remember, you won't see a single rancher drive over 15 miles per hour on this highway, no matter the time of day or horsepower of their truck. Even those millennials in their sprinter van are familiar with our policy and try not to hog the freedom of the road at the expense of piled bodies. But who knows how long it will last, this small slice of world where the furred things roam without being thrown under the belly of a vehicle. It's been years since a doe, coyote, squirrel, skunk, rabbit, prairie dog, or hawk lay roadside and undone. I would know, I sit right here as often as I can, flagging down the fool who thinks they can barrel through the body of this place. Make them slow. Make them stop and step foot on this road. Take in the many lives rooted or milling along it. Like you. Here you are, still listening, slowed and softer now. But what happens when I'm not here to stop you? How long will local memory last before it too is stamped out under a tire? Why me? You want to know why I'm the only one sitting vigilant to stop the flybyers like you? I guess I feel we have something in common, the roadkill and I. Don't get me wrong, I know we're not equal in the eyes of the roads makers, of the pavement layers, and the urban planners. I know I still choose to get in my car and rev through all that lives here, even if cautiously. Could I survive if I didn't? But must I kill in the process? The road makes kill of the doe and a killer out of me. I am caught in its far-flung web, but that doesn't make me blameless. I 
I hit a bunny once. I was on the phone, it was dark, open highway. Maybe it would have happened even if I'd had both hands on the wheel, but that's being too easy. I saw her and we both swerved together. I went the way she'd come from out of her trajectory, but she turned back to what she thought was safety and put her body right in my path and I toppled her. I felt the bump over her fragile bones run right through me, didn't know such a small thing could shake me so. Right up my spine, a death that traveled me, that curdled in my own ribs as it resonated there, this energy transferred into my own skin to ferment its violence into my makeup. I'll never forget it, the way that kill lives in me now. So no, the doe and I, I know, we are not equal. Maybe that's why I am so goddamn shaken because I do not know to how to absolve myself from killing how to never kill again. So I sit here whenever I can and I slow down the likes of you. But it's, it's more than that too. The reason I slow, the reason I care a damn lot more than most people who would roadkill and move right along, no soft corpse forever cradled in their pelvic bone like it is in mine, along with the windshield smeared monarchs, with the bird that flew headlong into my grate that one day on the mountain. Most people wouldn't even pull over. A doe laid open on the roadside, just another mundane scene of Central Oregon. But maybe I see some version of my own body too, laying there, pride open for the world to see and nobody slowing down for a second. I too worry about the unspooling of my insides by some careless hand. I too worry that my body will be halved by a hurtling thing that's happened before. The collision of many hands against my breasts, my back, my ass, a hit and run where they will always walk free when the damage is unseen and even when it is in plain sight. The time I woke up to another body pushing his way into me, parting me, breaking me, leaving on that, me on that bed like a doe on the roadside, thinking it was my fault for stepping foot on the pavement. And those boys, each of them, I have no claim to file for the amount of times they've killed me. They are the insured ones here. They are protected from ever seeing the gutted sheath of a thing I became when they were done with me. It's true that I could get in my car and drive as fast as them to run a body down blinded by my own ache, and haven't I? Have you? It's time we grapple with our own road rage, but the times when I have been the one in the ditch asking for someone to please pick up my body and move it to safety, I was ignored. I was made commonplace. Couldn't hear me over the turn of their tires, over the power of their engines. How could they see what they drive by every day of their lives? Another casualty, another bloodied body, another woman crying rape that doesn't get a second glance. See, it's the lie of inevitability that gives you the out to seeing that body as a body. If you are convinced you couldn't avoid it, how could you be to blame? How could you ever demand a change? Doesn't it strike you as odd that we have a special word for what gets gutted in our path, roadkill, that this system is designed for casualties and we drive it anyways? That's what gets me. That's why I'm sitting here grappling with all the ways I have killed and have been killed and will kill again and will be killed again to imagine a place where bodies don't get split open because you've got to get somewhere. 
the grocery store, the promotion, the fortune, the space in between my legs, those destinations require bodies to pile inevitable. Is it really so much to ask that I keep all my organs inside my skin until I reach my destination? Is it so much to fear the boring of my body into dirt and stone until I'm turned into skin husk, burrowed further into the grit of the concrete, wondering how many revolutions of attire it takes to unravel a body into something unrecognizable? The question I am trying to ask you is this, when is a body no longer a body? I'll tell you what's not the answer, a stilled ripe heart against a rib cage. Death does not strip a body of its bodyhood, isn't it clear? When we let a body rot on the roadside, we never thought it was a body to begin with. Don't you see now? Why is it so much to ask for us to slow, slow down? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Time I'm at, so I'll just. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for that beautiful reading. Okay, our second reader is Melissa San Luis Casombal Salazar. Melissa is a Tagalog Ilocana Earth Rooster Aquarian Sun. Her work thematizes feminist vengeance, the fluvial, everyday decoloniality, and the cacophonous aesthetics of queer people of color. She is a former assistant professor of politics. Melissa. Thank you everyone so much for being here and um, special thank you to Nina and Kazem and Neon for all your efforts to organize the event. I'm really grateful. Um, I first want to acknowledge the enduring sovereignty of the Kumeyaay Nation on whose unceded lands I am an uninvited guest. And I want to honor all of our righteous and misfit ancestors who make what we do possible. Um, I'm gonna start with an excerpt of a short story in progress. It's called The Weight and a content warning. Um, this piece does deal with violence against women. Now, a follow-up to our ongoing coverage of last month's shooting at a yoga studio which left two dead and four injured. Police have conducted dozens of interviews and reviewed the journals and electronic files of the killer, a 40-year-old former army soldier who took his own life at the scene. Police say there is evidence that the gunman, a self-described incel or involuntary celibate planned the attack for months and had a long history of hatred toward women. And now on to sports. One. In every green, we side bend and shiver, the wind's cabaret. Velvet fern green, crocodile guillabano green, dewy leaves the color of kombu crowned by sampaguita. In this unruly place where orchard and forest entangle, mossy heat unrobes us all. At phytoform pace, we stretch and unfurl, massive, low, commanded by light of delirious abundance. A feral wet arrives after sunrise and before darkness. 
In between, arid snatches syncopate the steam. My form is slight, delicate, a cluster among clusters of minuscule tiger orange bulbs arrayed like pointillist tiaras atop magenta stems. My fragrance scandalizes, zooming things swoon. I don't need zooming things to make my kind, just the breeze. I wait. The day of that life's passing had been our best in months. It had been my birthday, and no matter how angry, Mo would never forget or pretend to. We had woken well rested. After conceding to snuggling, Mo blindfolded me, spatchcocked me to the bed, then balanced a lit candled cupcake on my belly and ordered me to blow. When I failed to ex extinguish the flame, I was punished. After proving my penitence, I was fed cupcake and other creamy things. After feeding and showering, we stepped into day off spring sun and strolled without purpose. Wandering through the park, we tossed coins into buskers' cases and chatted with babushkas feeding pigeons. We ate street slices while stutter-stepping past thrift shop windows, debating which items we would choose to assemble the perfect Prince concert ensemble. We kept things bright, our chatter steering clear of all hazards. After burning a blunt in the alley, we caught a kung fu flick at the $5 Chinatown Theater, whispering fabricated dialogue into each other's ears and giggling. Then discount dim sum for dinner and a dozy train home. In the dank den of the subway car, Mo and I sat close. My arms encircled their torso, their arms wrapped my shoulders. I looked hard into Mo's eyes. Every trace of their cold flight away from me seemed gone. Mo was present, unfortressed. Months after fucking someone I shouldn't have, Mo had finally forgiven me. I nearly wept right there on the train. What had held us together during these months of stony silence and hissing arguments? Combined incomes? The occasional rage fuck? The train ride should have given way to a quiet evening, the perfect ending to a perfect day. Mo dozing off to the Liberty and Mystics, me with my trash book. Why did I leave our apartment? The perfect vibe, my delectable love. I should have stayed. I should have nurtured our mending, crawled into bed with Mo, covered them with kisses. Instead, I went to yoga, and that is where you killed me. Two. In sync with sun's tilt and ocean's pull, portended by our own garrulous gossip, each cluster of tiger orange bulbs grows an emerald skin and swells. I jostle with the other green beads engorging all around me. We reach the size of ripe lychee, but with smooth, drum-taut skin. Our treacly scent subdues. Burrowing things avoid our astringent flesh. We grow. It is clear that Mo is not among us, so I wait, as I promised. My big sister Lena had improbably given me a five-class pass to the yoga studio down the block as a birthday present. We both believed yoga to be asinine. But after a decade of intensifying night fevers, panic attacks, insomnia, undisciplined bowels, shifting gastroenterology diagnoses, and an avalanche of pharmaceuticals, I was desperate. My therapist had recommended, change, had recommended changing things up, exercise, yoga, acupuncture, herbs. The point is to make peace with your body, she'd said. But when had my body really been mine? The only other person who understood my fragile health was Mo, who agreed with my therapist. I'd told no one else how bad things had gotten, not Lena, not Nanai. No way in hell was I telling them about yoga. 
The baby sister Lena loved was given to novels and avoidance, not Orientalist white girl fads. I considered reaching out to my left coast design school crew, the folks who'd always peeled me off bar floors and tenuously partnered butches. But it'd been too long. We were scattered to the winds now and disreputable social media knots. Unlike you, you were 4chan savvy. Your social network cheered when you announced plans to kill bitches like me two days before you walked into serene sweat. Lena discovered I'd been secretly practicing yoga on her last visit. She'd fled to our apartment in retreat from suburbia. She rose from an afternoon nap and clocked me in the living room in Shalambasana. What is this? She crowed, hands on her hips. Weren't you the one who called yoga a bougie cracker hippie midlife crisis? She hopped beside my mat and contorted herself into caricatures. Adho Svanasana, Virabhadrasana. Check it out, I'm puppy dogging. How's my breathing? Yo, check my form. I complied, laying belly down, observing her buffoonery with my cheek resting on the back of my stacked palms. Her clowning demonstrated suspiciously good alignment. She spread herself on the floor, face up and starfish limbed. Keep it down, sis. I'm preparing for Shanapana, she whispered, closing her eyes. I watched her in fake repose in her fake shavasana, wanting to stomp her face. But some part of me understood her derision. I was alien to myself, inauthentic and ludicrous. A week later, the five class passed to serene sweat hot yoga arrived in the mail. It was tucked into a birthday card onto which Lena had hastily scrawled, Happy 38th, here's a little something for your astral travels. Love, Ate. Three, our tight emerald skins lengthen, plump up. The last peaks of sodden sun have fattened us with fruit. The boughs that feed us lean earthward as our tart flesh blooms from pale lime to gold. Our scent resweetens. Soon, sap bubbles through our crowns and drips down our thinning red golden skin. We attend more to burrowing things. Here, we all know something about each other. The sea-churned morning wind that floods over the chocolate hills into the valley, the nesting kingfishers, the soil's heat, all the crawling, digging, buzzing nations, each iteration of rain. In all this noisy, irriguous relation, I remain alert for Moe's shimmering, confident I will recognize the moment they've appeared. But I sense no one from the life before. The turn's egg, that rooster, the other mangoes dangling beside me, None sings with any familiarity. All I can do is wait. We had promised. Anyway, what is waiting to a mango? Mo and I had fallen in love seven years before you killed me. We met at a lesbian sex party called Swang. By the time I'd arrived, I was careening toward blackout drunk, but I'll never shake the clarity of that first image. Mo sat on a chair, knees splayed, with a Ruminesque woman straddling each thigh, grinding against Mo's dickies. That's the kind of thing you probably fantasized about all the time, am I right? Big bottomed women rubbing up on you, voluminous breasts in your face, desperate with want. An unexceptional man, genuinely desired by exceptional women. As breeder stories go, its power is irresistible, soldering populist to masculine triumphalism. Average Joe gets the unattainable girl who wants to fuck like a whore. Rich daddy isn't pleased, but trophy mama is quietly supportive. If only her rebellion had been to follow her heart. I stood there for a while, inhaling molly sweat and vodka, watching the women grind on Mo. 
D'Angelo bumped vaguely from the speakers. The unclasped side of Moe's overalls revealed their copper-skinned torso, which was bare, but for a blue-dyed binder wrapped tightly around their chest. Moe was all shellacked, quiff, and lithe, rangy arms, hands moving everywhere with a light touch. There was plenty else to behold all around me, humid, slick bodies, free. But after I saw Moe, I didn't see anyone or anything else. Okay, thank you. That's the first piece. Um, and I'm just gonna read now, thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna read now a, a really short poem. Um, this poem is about uh, the conditions and aftermath of my birth and the relationship between myself, my mother, and the biological father whom I've never met. Um, in the 1960s, my mother migrated from Manila, Philippines to Washington, DC, which is where she and my father met and fell in love. After they made plans to marry, my mother got pregnant with me. Um, it was then that she discovered that my father had a family in the Philippines that he'd left behind. In the months before I was born, she had my father deported. This piece is called Fatherfucker. Sucking shame from the breast, a suckling, a nursing and a hatred a rage and vested betrayal, a beginning ostentatious and intimate quotidian. Suckle this abandoned bliss, baby, brazen birthed bebe, swaddling swimming colostrum blossoms. Brine this abandoned, burnt, forsaken squeezing, non a late, lazy, delicate, zombie lactation, a leaving nipular, clogged and craven. Cradle your jilting. Two tilting, silting, forsaking, a foraging, a curious, sweetie, steady, salty, dying, feeding. First taste, first face, first place, fist, grace, erase, race, nourishing, escape. This is this meal, that is this mine, merely that crime, this is our time, latch. A holding fast, a flowing, infetted, beseeching, no naive denying, midnight screeching, open ducts, open mouth, Maternal month, maybe bond, word, not bored, blessing blue, mottled ostrich. Hide, baby, hide. Morning glorias, Ave Marianas, Manang mother, Manila, silver digger, raw your morning heart, a glowless, shambling, filling, sitting. Eyes locked, strung, cuddling, bundling, heat bottle numbing. His my face, his my eyes, my pre-wording, her my facing, my eyeing, tiny clasping. Lush lullaby, by, by delightful deceit, yours, your own. A baptized wreck, a reeking, wrecking, non-forgetting, a shrine of shunted, self-disgusting, oozing, breasting, leaking, viscous between the gums through the throat. Skin on skin, skin the sin, absent him, sink for kin, find another, make a brother, always wonder. Nana's baby, Papa's maybe, same, same, but different grammar, same grammar, different babies, different grammar, same empire, same grammar, different violence, same, same, different difference. Pangane, firstborn, born baby, first daddy, pangane, pangane, arai, arai, arai. Baby, be mine, be bebe, be bent, pangane, brittle, drink, drink, daddy, baby, be mama, be maybe. That's it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> we have our little reactions here. We can give you a little claps. And you can change the skin tone of your claps, too.
<laughs> Thank you, Melissa. It was a wonderful reading, um, beautiful pieces. Um, our third reader is Neon Masharoff. Uh, Neon Masharoff is a double Sagittarian poet from Brooklyn and the post-Soviet diaspora. Their work celebrates friendship, nightlife, collective deviance, and other practices of care that enable queer, trans, and otherwise minoritarian survival amidst ambient violence, trauma, and precarity. Neon. Thanks to Kaza and Manina for organizing and to friends from far away for zooming in and to everyone in the program and my cohort for really everything, for being so supportive and awesome. Cool, big heart. Um, cool, so I'm gonna read some poems and I'm gonna read some other stuff. Want is a complete sentence. Repetition creates meaning, which is why I said, let's go. Disappear with me into the lake. The moon was full, everything cyclical. I waded in. That was the year I stopped hiding my face on Brighton. We bought tubs of Olivia because our grandmothers were dead. Marina, Sophia, dusty bookshelves, freezer full of bodies, every single one of them mine. The journey of the fool into a wanting crowd or coast to coast into a waiting sky. Protection spell. Circle of Narcan points towards the bathroom. We purify this ground in fire and purple salt. Reverent, imperfect, how a body leaves forever and revenant comes back. Boston winter is B12 depletion. Bread, earth-balanced dinner, dumpstered breakfast, teeth bracing for slime. Arugula sweats, outside is so expensive, I just lie in your bed all day. I read your books, I watch the white sky settle on the low-slung skyline, stay hidden in the city, blank and out of context. Pipe shop, bike bomb, walk down to the river like, hey man, the air is free. This Marlboro light is not, I sip it anyway. In St. Pauli, I walk down to the water daily, count ACAB tags like talismans, drink rhubarb soda by the fire-charred hull of the beloved techno club I heard so much about. Recline on artificial dune under a plastic palm tree. Watch container ships. Alone, it becomes possible to have a mission, a map to fill the hours following. My inner monologue grows tall like a detective. Learn to follow clues. Anti-Brexit poetry collective. Butches doing face control at 48 hour club night. Trail of wolves. I eat the fish sandwich. I take the boat. Each dog running towards me down the sand. Is now my dog. Bonded to each other in the encounter, city built on city, each encounter, lock eyes in hallways, shut the door behind, or in the doorway if the roof is locked. Give of ourselves while something left to give. To live the dream and body is to share the dream. Another day and body is to share the body. A social reproduction, life force passed through contact. Swallowed, it dissolves, undone like rupture, laid up between signifiers. There were years I spent just waiting. 
shatter towards dispersal, dissipate through sound, base reunion, baby, baby, base, 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 atomized companionship, companion structure. The DJ is not a helpline. The base is not a life alert. The synth is not a lifeline. The DJ is hot, the life online. The through line, not a synth, assist the segment is pressurized. Mouth dry by cemetery gate. My baby, base, base, base. And I just covet the reckoning. Hey man, follow me towards the sling. In my head where we are perfect still, I'm still obsessed with your dumb face. A demigod in training, cream cheese smeared across your chiseled jaw, like in a Snapchat filter. In a dream, I go with y'all on tour to Philly. And in the double tier cathedral gig, she rubs my lower back and tells me I need cumin injections. Subhumantaneous, the money cumin shot, and herbalism of collapse. Cool, and then I'm gonna read an excerpt from a new project I've been working on this year. Working title is Gay Noir. Um, so for background, this part is set in New York City in 2018, and there's been a series of brutal murders. The victims are mostly human, white, young boys from well-off families. And because vampires, there's vampires, because vampires are rumored to be responsible, there's, the city's response has been a crackdown on vampire nightlife spaces. Um, there's teams of police called Hunters, it's a special unit, and yeah. So the, the narrator in this is Hex, they're a moody, non-binary, James Duval type. Um, yeah, and they're trying to get to the bottom of things. Cool. All Hunter, oh wait, important, important mood, special vampire unit. All Hunters are bastards, even your family. Hex passes his tag every time they walk down Houston, and yet. They had called Carver up on a whim around the time the raid started, reaching across years of distance, hoping to extract some intel. The job was fucking with him. It used to be when they met up, he would talk about how much he hated being a hunter, how he planned to quit. It's how Hex would justify their ongoing meetings to themselves. A hunter, yeah, okay, but only temporarily. Lately, they weren't so sure. I've been thinking about what we talked about last time Carver is saying, already most of the way through his Jameson Ginger, abolition, all that, the unit disbanding. You know I take the things you tell me seriously, but what are we supposed to do with people who do things like that? He looked at Hex like they might really have an answer. I'm sorry you had to find a kid like that. Thanks. Forget it. Anyway, I'm not supposed to talk about work outside of work. It's just his mom keeps texting me. I haven't slept since Tuesday. How's the job search going? Haven't had time to look. Anyway, when you've been a hunter long enough, the only jobs that want you are hunting jobs. That can't be all the way true, Hex starts to say it, but stops. What do they know about his reality? About as much as he knows about theirs, and yet. The candle flickers, light lingering across the scar on Carver's left eyebrow. Whiskey warm, Hex imagines cop cars burning. Hex wants to touch his face. Instead, they get up, rest a hand on his shoulder, squeeze lightly. Sorry, I gotta pee. I'll be right back. What are you doing? What are you doing? Hey, 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 what are you doing? Jasper, 12.17 a.m. Jasper, 12.34 a.m. Jasper, 12.56 a.m. If the new Hex is out with a hunter right now, they put their phone on airplane mode. Red Sharpie on the bathroom wall. Don't give up. Below that in black. Why not? Red again. Because I love you. When they open the door, Carver is there. They grab his arm and pull him in, locking the door behind them. They unbutton his shirt and push it back, grip tight to meat and muscle. 
The wolves would love him at the red, they think, enjoying the visual, carver on the bar if only. They bite his shoulder, trying to keep it human, incisors only, hex bites to keep their canines in, keep distance for the nearest artery, bad dog. Part of them wonders if he might be kind of into it, a hunter turned vampire, imagine. They have a knack for being able to tell when someone might be down, they smell it on their blood. At the very least, he might hate it less than he hates his job. They could save him, kind of, and then one hunter less. Win, win. Maybe not now. Hex hates it, all this second guessing. Not here, this dive bar bathroom, their holy space of abandon. They drop low and push Carver back against the wall. Saliva floods their mouth. The child undone, flayed open, life spreading in a pool around them on all sides. Impossible to look upon directly, even in this brutal century. City protects its children, sometimes. Sometimes lets one slip. They slip under the subway, off the roof, under a garbage truck. They fall to one another on the playgrounds. They fall to cops, to hunters, to the prisons. Some city children live at war, others just hear the sirens. This child ruled innocent, a sacrifice the humans weren't ready to get off. Hex, Candies, Thursday, 2018. At first he was all muscle, that was first. A shape out of the dark, condensing, tangible. Thick forearms like a sculpture, reminds Hex of the living end. You wanna know what it is I like best about guys' bodies? They got this line running right down the middle of them, dividing their torso in two. Hex imagines this boy splitting them in two, splitting this boy in two. Elbows asynchronous, does he vogue? Torso soaked in light, red under lasers, fluid grace. Was Lacey gonna show? Not here, Elle told them at O'Neill's. Okay, so coming to red, your turf? Yeah, right. Okay, Candies, see you there. But now Katie is spinning in a and the thought of talking business is... Gin tonic blows, sweet, cold on tongue, sweeter with every gulp, the napkin wet. Hex touches glass to lip, tender where Jay had slugged them, pulsating with the beat. Scans the room, no one familiar. Fixates on this dancer, who is this kid? Someone from Teether, maybe? Hex checks their phone. Two new bites in your area. Is there time? A quick snack in the bathroom before Lacey shows to get their spirits up. Hex brushes hand through hair reflexively, directed back and to the left like it would stay. Adjust their tank tops so it rests just so across their chest, showing off their collarbones. Elle always made them feel so small potatoes, so corny, so what other food metaphors? Smashed? Broiled? Burnt? But if you really knew something, it would all be worth it. Maybe not either. Maybe it's another vamp? Usually Hex could tell, but they're so distracted. Warm layers of bass beat faster. Atlanta's tropicalia, ghostly vocals fade and pan. The skittering hi-hats always made Hex feel surveilled, like ghostly fingers tapping the back of their neck. Were the whispers in the track or in their head? Or was it Lacey somewhere in the room calling to them? The beat work pushes faster into almost Jersey Club tempo, go, 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 and still the boy moves slow, his eyes still closed. His hands run through his close-cut hair, returning often to his neck. Maybe he's on Molly. But no, none of that like 360 neck roll thing. Maybe he's in a cable? Skin glows under pink light, now blue light, pink light, green light, pink light, red light, blue. The first time Hex watched The Living End, it haunted them for weeks. Luke reminded them of Jasper, unlit cigarettes, self-aware as mark of coolness, god-awful driving, nihilism, water bottle whiskey. Hex recognized themselves in John, the nervousness, committing but never fully, along for the ride but always ready to get off. They used to think of Luke as the bad guy. Now they weren't sure. They had to pull this off to make it up to Jay. If Lacey had the information Hex was after, Jasper would be off the hook, if Lacey even showed. The dancing boy in Hex's gaze stays mesmerizing, omen of absolution. 
must not be vamp, must be full human, how he moves. The way one moves when time exists with consequence, when they are lifted briefly from that gravity, bound, unbound. Hex there is devotional. The beat is breathy, commandeers a syncopation in the limbs, a warble synth unwinds. The room is thick now, but the boy dances alone. At first he was all muscle, now he is all light. Thank you so much. That was great. Um, these readings are incredible. Um, and we have one more amazing reader. I'm so glad everyone stuck around. It's so easy to ghost on Zoom, but like everyone stayed because the readings are so incredible. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Um, just to remind you before I introduce the last reader, we, there will be time for a Q&A and discussion at the end, and we're doing it by chat. So you can just type into chat whatever your question is. Um, or whatever you want to share, and Nina will pick it up and, and share it with everyone in, in, the, um, in the discussion. So thank you to our first three readers. It was really incredible. And now we're going to hear from Elisa, too. Elisa is a Vietnamese American with Pacific Northwest roots. Her work explores languages, racial identity, mental health, and intimate relationships. You can find her dancing in a corner. I have seen, witnessed this myself, or wearing Jeffrey Campbell Lita boots. Alisa. Hello, I am a little shaken up that you've seen me dancing in a corner. Well, it was at my house. So, so oh, <laughs> it was at the Never. MFA party. I played, I was playing Michael Jackson and you, you know, nobody else was dancing, but you were dancing, so kindred spirits. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I do dance in workshops. Thank you, Lita. Um, <laughs> so I guess when I was composing um, pieces for this reading, I thought back to this advice given to me for this final project that I'm supposed to be working on for Bannon's class and how to weave different pieces that don't look like they fit together on surface level, but somehow are related beneath that. So enjoy. My name is Alisa. Alisa. The name my parents call me, it's the name and the I will always be an E. Vietnamese dips into my English, it stains the skin on my face. It is the knowledge of being right and the fear of being wrong. Call me Elisa until I lose all the Vietnamese in my syllables. Call me Elisa. Elisa. The name my half-sister gave me at birth, a gift or a reminder. The woman who was supposed to be my older sister stayed out of my life for 21 years. It's the venom in my voice. It's the resentment taped to my back. If you call me Alyssa, my eyes will glaze over. You will be another person I shake hands with. I will grin through the pain as I remember my half-sister bruises my life. My name is Alyssa. That sounds wrong now. How do you recognize an intelligent person? By their vocabulary. I cannot pronounce words like anesthesia, ascetic, euphoria, ephemeral, and 
vulnerable. My lexicon has too many languages inside it. If you opened up my dictionary, you'd see pictures, characters, and words with its phonetics written in Vietnamese. Namja catches me as I stumble on desensitizing. He tells me that it's an S as I get stuck with the T. Keep trying, he tells me, keep trying. I buffer three times, but he congratulates me. I remember this moment, a moment he sees past Elisa. It's impossible, but he can read my language. I'm not sure what people call their parents, but I don't think mom and dad is correct. I call my parents Bo and Ma. Bo used to help me with my math homework. He'd read the chapters, he'd do example problems and work them out in colored pencils. He'd write in purple and green when I started calculus. I stopped seeing purple and green. And I go for tea up a gray hill to sunset cliffs, window arches, cardboard rooftops, gated communities, blinking lights, the sky fused into oranges and pinks, red sun, she's the ceiling oranges, I'm the loud pink, we brew our struggle, sample our personal journeys, we pick our favorite houses, teas, battles, this moment should have been extracted, stowed, Favored. I like to sew silences inside of a tea bag and let it sit. Inhale, exhale. If I could count the number of tea leaves to project our future, I let her know I am still teetering in my high heels, wondering if the sun will be this golden tomorrow, if this part slash decision slash life was right, and that no amount of tea could ever qualm these fears. My name is, my middle name is my Khan. I asked my mom if she knew what it meant, and in the jumble of Vietnamese, a constant translation after translation, she couldn't recall what it meant. I know my is my mother's name. I know mine means flower. I know Khan means stones. I don't know if I ever put flower and stone together. If I threw a stone at a flower, I watch the petals scatter to death, stare at the stone for being a victim, and give each petal a funeral. I like flowers. I like staring at sunflowers because their stems are so green. They don't need to be tied to a pole so they grow straight. They grow, and when they're too heavy, they eat shit. My father's hands have always been callous because of the gardens he tended. My hands will be callous from the letters, gratitude journals, amount of pressure between the black queen pencil and my thumb. I went on a walk with a boy. The cars haunted us because the blurry walk sign was blinking its orange hand. He told me that corona could do permanent damage to someone's lungs. My dad had lung cancer. I didn't mind if 20% of my lungs were damaged. We'd be tied together not only by our calluses, but by our lungs. It's masochistic, but I need some warmth. I miss both. The queer uh, Namja traces over the characters. 
He tells me how sound and lines work. I want to imprint his words onto my sleeve. The same T-bar, close, quotation, translation, I don't speak Chinese, close quotation, finding a coffee shop, we draw crayon cars, his commands quake through my palms, I paint the strategies onto his cheeks, don't tell that I have a crush. The accident, mistake, decision drags my feet across Point Loma, the sun brushes its yellow ink onto our backs. I grip his hand too hard and trip on flat land. Do hearts trip when someone smiles? Breathing touch debilitates them. His steps sound like dragon missiles. I trip on flat ground again. This is an accident. I hope the sun doesn't bleed yellow and paint over my strategies. Shh. Pulls the reins. Shh. Shoots missiles into the blue. I'm a step behind my suede heels, French kiss, weak ankles, or a tripping heart. I wish I could count tea leaves, slash, win the war, slash, consult a crystal ball about this boy's future. He tugs on my arm, my heels trip. If he glances behind him, would I vanish? My heels, is this a tragedy? Heel. One night, we adventure from Ralph's to my apartment. The moon shines while the cove nips at our hands in tandem. Beside, no tripped heels, no war cries or field strategies. I never thought I want someone else's footsteps synchronized with mine. That's my mistake. According to every Vietnamese association, regional meaning I've been to, our parents immigrated to America and hopes their children have a better future. My dad has an associate's degree and my mother didn't make it out of middle school. Do people go to school without any kind of role models? Am I really supposed to surpass my parents? I'd rather grow flowers. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. That was wonderful, really powerful. Obviously, Brandon's teaching you well. <laughs> uh, so, hey, I'm gonna turn it over to Nina uh, to take over the Q&A period. Thank you, everyone. That was just a fantastic, fantastic reading, all of you. Um, I say, uh, I'm going to unmute everybody and let's give our readers a very big round of applause. Here we go. <laughs> okay, thank you, everybody. <laughs> um, I hope you're all looking at the chat because there's a lot, a lot of love in the chat. Um, and apparently a lot of Sagittarius is, as well. Um, so, really wonderful. <laughs> um, hey, just before we get get going, um, the, um, if the people actually have questions, want to put them in there. Um, but before people drop off, I just wanted to pun out there that um, we will have a second uh, MFA student reading that's going to happen on Wednesday, June the 3rd. 
um, and that will be the graduating MFA students. So come back for that. We'll send out the, um, the link and the announcement and everything. Okay, um, Nina, go ahead. All right, if anybody has any questions, we are open here. Ah, this is a really good one. Okay, um, any MFA learnings or advice from the first years? Anybody want to take it? <laughs> Can they unmute themselves now or do we have to unmute? They should be able to. You guys able to? There we go. I'll, yeah. I'll jump on that bomb. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, I would say with the transition, there's going to be, um, I'm assuming this is from a prospective student. Is that correct? Or a, sure an admitted from, student? No, it's from Ryan no, Harper, no, sorry. it's from, <laughs> oh, Ryan Harper. He's an undergrad. <laughs> oh. So perspective, it's fine. <laughs> oh, perspective, but not for our program necessarily. Oh, okay. So just the question is then um, what we've learned in our first year or advice that we could give? I think it's just advice. Yeah. Just advice. Uh, I'm going to, Alyssa, did you, Elisa, sorry, did you want to? Because no, you're on go mute. Ahead. Yeah, no, I just wanted to be unmuted because I could. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, now I feel a little bit ridiculous because <laughs> um, I was going to answer a different question. But I guess um, I, I'm a first year, so I don't feel like I'm really in a position to give much advice. But um, I would say what's been really helpful for me is um, writing through those moments when I look at the page and I think this is shit. Um, and I have a whole community that's really supportive here um, from students to faculty that allows me to, um, to write through those moments <laughs> uh, until the next day when I don't, when I feel it's like slightly less shitty. I can jump in on that too. Um, I think two things I learned this year in the first year of the MFA that were the most influential to me were one, to have a really um, consistent writing practice because all of your other responsibilities can feel so overwhelming and take up so much time. It's really difficult to prioritize that creative work and, and finding the same time every day to do it. Not that I actually follow this advice all the time, but um, even having the thought to do it, at least I do it half the time maybe. And um, it's really important to keep that time as sacred. And the other thing, which is even bigger and more important, I'd say is like to, to treat the work of your, of your peers, your, your colleagues, your classmates um, as like the most sacred and important thing in the program. Um, that you will encounter um, because it is and because they will treat that to you right back and I think that's been the most um, powerful thing for me this year is that reciprocal relationship with all my lovely cohort in the second years and third years so yeah 
Okay, we have another question here. Uh, what is your creative writing process like? Can I answer that? Because uh, mine is a catastrophe and I love it. It's a, <laughs> I, I get these like weird spurts of like energy to write and it's always based on like my everyday life and these emotions and feelings in that moment and then somehow destroying my whole world and then writing it down and then rewriting it and then and then playing with colors and it's, it's a whole thing it's a whole thing <laughs> I hope that answers your question okay we have another question um what attracted you guys to the UCSD MFA program uh and a kind of a follow-up question, um, what is your daily life timeframe workload like in the MFA program? Can I clarify, this is also not from one of the incoming students. I, I can jump in. I can't see Neon, so I'm not sure if they're trying to jump in either. So please do if, if you are. Um, oh, was Neon about to talk? No, okay. Um, something that drew me to UCSD, I mean, many, many things for this program, but um, I think one of the biggest is that it's cross genre. I mean, I feel like that's maybe sounds like a easy answer, but um, to, feel not only encouraged to write in several genres, but also to like blend those boundaries and to always be um, questioning and challenging the politics of genre too, in the ways that we try to move across genres, um, I think is really powerful to me, um, not only in the way I'm encouraged to do it, but the way that I see all my peers doing that. Um, and I think that I would have really, really, um, I don't know, been stifled in, in a program where I was, you know, forced to stay in only one genre, which um, some programs are more traditional, um, often encourage that. So I think that's a big, a big thing for me is that um, spectrum and the blending of those boundaries here. All right, we have a question uh, for Elisa. Um, and my apologies for any mispronunciations I make right now. Uh, you cover many different topics, but a highlight for me was the topic of language, especially regarding Hyang Viet in relation to your name, English, and your Vietnamese names. Could you expand on the importance of language, uh, Vietnamese, English, creative, et cetera, to yourself as a writer, especially as Asian Vietnamese American? Specifically, a highlight was your lines regarding your parents. Uh, great work and enjoyed everyone's readings. Stuff. I love you long. Like, oh, he's a Leo, BT doves. Uh, oh, come on. Uh, um, but I think going back to the question at hand, um, expanding on the importance of language. So I grew up in a household where Vietnamese was the first, like, was the main language of the household. And I was put into different, I was put into ELL classes because I would not speak 
in English or just speak at all. So the assumption became, oh, this girl's straight from Vietnam. She doesn't know any Vietnamese. And it became, it, that just became one of the biggest defining characteristics as I was growing up. But then as I learned more languages, played with languages in my writing, such as not just Vietnamese, but Japanese, playing with Morse, I can do semaphore, it's all a good time, and also not even languages in like the traditional sense, but also languages in what is a dance community's language, what is that lexicon, how is my own body, and what is my lexicon, like, you know, just like a part of my identity. And so expanding on the language, it's, it becomes like, it's such a big part of my life. It's such a really visual aspect of my identity that it felt like it just had to be in the writing and to put my reader in a position where they are forced to be in a very non-native land where English is not the language that is now being written, but let me just put you in a place where this is not familiar. And so I just wanted to play with language a lot more and just fuck with people's readings. Hope that answers your question. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. All right, we have a question from Carlita. Uh, do any of y'all have any zany out there passion projects, like chaps or stories, et cetera, that you're not necessarily working on for publishing or being polished? Would you mind sharing them? I'm tentatively, well, I think I was working on a series of poems tied to the new Star Wars episodes called the Kylo Ren Suite. Um, but I think in my free time between doing these two giant projects and teaching and all grad school work, I might expand that to like a bigger sci-fi um, situation. So I'll send that to you. Um, so it's like a, a well-known secret in like the MFA cohort, like little meetings we have or like our group chat that um, I am compiling a list of works to give to my crush that is about him. So uh, yeah, there's that. And also um, I wanted to like work on a piece that combined hip, my experience in the dance scene plus writing. So that's what I'm working on. All right, we've got another question. Uh, what readings and writers have been influencing you of late? And if you guys are reading anything outside of your classes, that's of particular interest. Um, I can answer. Um, so I've been rereading a lot of my um, favorite fiction novels lately um, because I'm trying to write fiction and figure out how to do that <laughs> and going back to my favorite books to try to do that. So um, I've reread um, 
uh, We the Animals by Justin Torres, um, Bastard Out of Carolina by Dorothy Allison, and Salvage the Bones by Jesmyn Ward are three um, novels that have been really influencing me in the past and also now as I reread them. I've been recommending this to everyone, but I just finished Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars by Kai Cheng Tom, which is just like uh, like an auto fiction, like fantastical memoir. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. All right, we've got another question here. Uh, how has your work changed or taken shape since first starting the program? Okay, all right. I can't stand the silence anymore. Technical difficulties within ourselves. Um, do I have any? I think a lot more of my work has decided to play with visually on the page, and I think a lot of changes have come from that. Um, and also, I think change-wise, it's under. It's not just starting projects and like putting them aside for like whoever knows whatever now. It's also just like trying to combine already started projects and put them, weaving them together and making understanding on a deeper level that I did not even know it existed, but then I look at it for hours and hours at a time and I'm like, oh, okay. I can um, riff off of that as well. I feel like, the way that I think about form and structure in my work has been radically transformed. Um, I'm not just thinking about the way the text looks on the page, uh, which, you know, I've always kind of paid attention to lineation and space, but now I'm thinking like, why, why pages? You know what I mean? Um, and that is really new and exciting for me. Um, and I think that when I entered the program, I started with this conception of like, all right, these are the projects I really want to work on. And um, what reading uh, the course material has, um, has done for me and speaking um, with faculty and learning from my um, student colleagues, um, just having such a vibrant creative community um, and being exposed to different work all the time, what that has done for me is um, made me more open to contingency in the writing process. So I'm one of these people who like, I think, uh, you know, I sit down and I think like, I'm going to write about this. And I've, you know, I've been like, not allergic to prompts, but I, th I think there have been times when I've been like, uh, you know, I don't really, I don't need a prompt. There's things that I know I want to write about. Um, but for instance, in Brandon's Modernisms class uh, this quarter, um, I'm having to do these short papers 
uh, in conversation with the text we're reading and sometimes sort of fueled by prompts and the work that's coming out of them is like, um, it's been transformative for me to see what can emerge when I don't start with a preconceived notion of what I want to write about. Yeah, echo Melissa on the prompts. Those were great, uh, have been great. Um, and yeah, I think this is like alluding to the cross-genre program thing where I feel like I came in here with an idea for a big poetry project, which I'm still working on. It's like a poetry research, like, et cetera. But I didn't think I would be writing fiction. I haven't written fiction since I was a kid, really. And I, it just kind of happened uh, being surrounded by fiction writers and also like uh, just having the workshop space to play around with it. And it's been really fun because it's, there was a project that I imagined taking place as like a poetry collection, but I think I've, it has like all these new horizons now and that's been fun to play with. So we'll see where that goes. Okay, I think uh, that was our last question. Um, so I wanna thank everybody for joining us and thank you to our amazing readers. Um, I hope you all uh, come back on June 3rd um, to, to see our graduating readers. Um, and uh, that's that's about it for me. Uh, Kazem, do you wanna say anything to end us? Uh, thank you, everybody. It was just an incredible, incredibly powerful reading and a very vibrant, discussion in the Q&A. I loved hearing um, hearing all of your thinking. I'm so glad to hear that uh, Brandon's class is very fruitful for all of you, so that's really great. And um, let's uh, stay in touch and see you again on, uh, on June 3rd. And all of you who tuned in today, um, check in with whoever you got this link from today, check in with them and get it from them again and come back and hear our, our wonderful um, graduating readers. All right, thank you everyone. Have really wonderful tomorrows. Thank you, thank you everyone. Bye, bye everybody. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>